You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 125. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. You've reached another Local Maximum. As you know, we're in the midst of a huge presidential election here in the U.S., and while there seems to be nothing normal about this year, I thought it'd be fun to do a two-part series on our electoral system, the Electoral College. This will allow us to approach the subject from several different angles, all of which I find fascinating. First is just the raw politics of it, which I'm going to put aside for now, but uh, it's going to get a lot more intense, if that's even possible, in August when the political conventions happen. Uh, so, so it's happening less than two months away. And then uh, after that, it'll just snowball as the debates uh, leading into the election in November, that one day, November 3rd. The second approach will be just kind of the constitutional design approach, which we talk about a lot today, uh, where we get to look more at the history and about the, the, the problem of designing decision-making systems in general and a little bit on the philosophy behind that. And finally and this is coming next week, I'm going to be discussing the mathematical description of elections, and this gets into social choice theory and Shapley values and where these models fall short of what actually is going on in the real world. Uh, So I don't think you'll get all this breadth on the subject very often, and uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. So today you're going to hear from Tara Ross, who is a strong defender of the Electoral College, who has written extensively and built expertise on the subject. And next week, we're going to hear briefly from someone who was actually a member of the Electoral College, and they'll also go solo talking about some of the mathematics and social choice theory behind it and uh, and some of my views on it. Uh, one part that I still need is an Electoral College critic. Uh, I read a little Quora for that, uh, but you know I'm sure I could do better. And also I'm interested in hearing from those of you who live in countries, uh, who live in other countries outside the U.S. and want to weigh in on how your electoral system compares. So if you fall into either of those two groups, email localmaxradio at gmail.com. All right. My next guest is nationally recognized for her expertise on the Electoral College. She is a retired lawyer and former editor-in-chief of the Texas Review of Law and Politics and the author of a recent book I read called Why We Need the Electoral College. Tara Ross, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So one fact that I took in when reading your book, the procedure for electing the president of the United States has just a ton of pieces. There's the Electoral College, there's the there's the state votes, there's the primaries, which are sort of still ongoing this year, technically, but, but kind of not. So let's just start by getting the thousand foot view of like what the Electoral College is and how it works. I also have some international listeners who might not know. Well, in America, we conduct a two-part presidential election system. The first part is the part you're used to. It occurs the first at the beginning of November. We think of this as Election Day. And in each state, so we actually conduct 51 completely different presidential elections on that day. 51 because, of course, there's an election in D.C. also. So we have 51 completely separate, purely democratic processes, one in each state plus D.C., to to help us elect the president. Now, on that day, you're not really casting your ballot for president. It it probably seems like you are because you're going to look at the ballot and it's going to have the names of the candidates on there. And it, it appears that you're voting for president. What you are actually doing is you're actually casting your ballot for a slate of electors. So I'm in Texas. If I if I vote Republican or Democrat or third party, there are actually 38 presidential electors behind that name I see on the ballot. And I'm actually casting my ballot for the, those 38 people. And I think that's something else important to to know about this process. People get concerned sometimes that they don't know who these electors are. Am I expecting a Democrat to go vote for Trump or am I expecting a Republican to go vote for Biden? Right. No, I mean, I I realized when I did uh, before I looked into it for this episode, I didn't know the names of any electors. R- right. Which might be a mistake in retrospect. <laughs> but um, but th- but this is the way the process has worked for a while, because we're just 
so comfortable, I guess, with this winner take all system. And, and, but I do think it's important for people to know that this, these are Republicans committed to vote for a Republican candidate, Democrats committed to vote for a Democratic candidate, and also each 30, third party candidate has their own slate of electors. So on election day, you are deciding, I want the Republican slate of electors to represent my state, or I want the Democratic slate of electors to represent my state. And that is what that election is about. So we feel like we know who the president is at the end of election day, and, and we mostly do. But technically, the president is not elected until all of these electors that we elected on election day go to a second, um, a, sec a second part of the election, which is held in December. And those are the meetings of the electors that were elected in November. And those meetings of the Electoral College in December is what actually, those are the official votes for president as the constitution sees it. And that's the day on which we elect our president. And of course it takes a majority of electors to elect the president on that day, which is currently 270 electors to win the White House. If nobody gets a majority, there is a backup procedure in the house, but we haven't used that in, in a really long time. Right. So typically election night, we know who the winner is because each state has a certain number of electors or, or points. That's what we see in the big map when everybody is, uh, when they're calling the states. But it's kind of an exciting part of the process, the, the entertaining part where they're calling each state. Um, and then um, typically there's usually a, a majority winner, which is, um, which is surprising. That's not something like the founders would have guessed and not something I would have guessed if I saw this system written on paper but hadn't seen it in practice. I wouldn't have guessed that there would always be uh, or almost always be a majority winner. Well, certainly when the founders started it, they didn't expect that that would happen. They, they thought the backup procedure in the House would be used a whole, a whole lot more than it is. But the way they saw it was, well, look, you know, probably the big states have an, an advantage in selecting the pool of candidates. So which candidates actually end up in that House election? But then they, they had created that process in the House such that the small states would have a leg up there. So they thought, you know, the large states have an advantage in selecting the pool of candidates, but then the small states get a little extra say and deciding which one of those from the pool will get to be the actual president. It hasn't happened that way. And it hasn't largely because of the rise of political parties and that and winner take all voting and that sort of thing. But yeah. that was at least the expectation. So um, my impression is also, and this was written, I've 1789. I'm, I hope I have my date right. 87. Uh, eight, 1787. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, what's 1789? Is that when the constitution went into effect? Or, right. And so, when okay. George Washington right. was inaugurated and everything. Yeah. It's, it's a few months off. What are, what are you going to do? <laughs> You're uh, fine. <laughs> so, um, well, sometimes I add 100 years or subtract 100 years. And that's, uh, I don't know where that comes from, but anyway. Um, so I, I was also, uh, my impression is that the founders also thought that uh, the electors would actually kind of think and deliberate for themselves instead of just executing instructions from their state. And, you know, they thought the Electoral College would would produce a majority, much less often than it has, which we've gone over. So why do you think their decision to create an electoral college works today, despite the fact that it's kind of not used in the way that uh, they first thought? Well, actually, I mean, I think they had different expectations. And some of them did think that the electors would be much more free than they are today. But I'm not sure everybody was completely on board with that as much as we think. I mean, as early as 1796, people were upset that was the first recorded quote unquote faithless elector. And people were really upset at that elector that, you know, that early in the country's history. So mm. I, I think really expectations were mixed about exactly how much freedom the electors would have. Um, you know, later on, James Madison said there, there was a proposal on the table to kind of automate that process so that instead of being people, it would just be an, you know, an automatic electoral vote. And James Madison said, that he thought it was a really good thing that, that how it had worked out where the electors for the most part were basically a rubber stamp of what the people thought. But then he also thought it was good that in an emergency, the electors could, you know, they, they could retain that authority to be independent and to fix an emergency situation. And, of, and he said in that quote, he said, and they would substitute the first choice of the people for the, or the second choice of the people for the first in that situation. And so he still kind of saw it as like that the electors main job is to reflect the will of the people. But he, you know, he valued that ability for independent thinking towards the end if it was needed. 
so they have these, this electoral college and then mm -hmm. um, it's very flexible how it would work out. So basically they wrote it and they're like, this could actually go in a number of different directions. Now it's sort of up to the states and Congress to decide how this thing is going to work on the back end. You know, we have a lot of flexibility on how electors are, are chosen. Absolutely. In, in fact, in the first several elections, there was a, there were a lot of methods used. And even if you look through the years, you can see just situations where states decided they were going to do something different from what the national <laughs> decision might have been. In 1836, the state of Virginia did not like the vice presidential candidate. They, they were really upset because he was, he, had his, he was living with one of his slaves, basically. Um, I actually think that the candidate wanted to marry the slave, but he wasn't allowed to. But in well, any event, which Virginia, candidate was that? That's an this was Richard, Richard Johnson in 1836. Oh. It was the year Martin Van Buren was on the ticket. And so the Virginia delegates to the National Convention, they basically said they didn't like Man Martin Van Buren either. <laughs> so they just said, we have gone as far as we can in supporting Martin Van Buren and we refuse to take Johnson too. They wouldn't do it. So they went back to their state and the, their state ballot had Martin Van Buren on it, but it also had a completely different candidate for the vice president. And that's just what Virginia did that year. And so that's why Richard Johnson, by the way, is the only vice presidential candidate to not get a majority when, when the presidential candidate did at the same time. And the Senate later ended up electing him anyway in a backup contingent procedure. But, but that was all because of Virginia and their dissatisfaction with what was going on. Or you could look at a year like 1876 where Colorado, they had just joined the union. I mean, basically because of time, money, they just, it was impractical. They said, we can't afford it. We can't do this. It's impractical. And so they did not hold a presidential election that year. And the, the legislature simply appointed electors directly. And that was because it served Colorado's interest to do it that way. And, and any, I guess, so again, you can look throughout history. And even though we are used to looking at things one way, and just this winner take all system with kind of a top down national narrative, that's not how it was viewed in the beginning at all. In the beginning, states would just did their own thing. So I can imagine, you know, in the case of Colorado, it was not feasible to hold the election. It, it sounds like they weren't like against having the election, you know, if, if it were feasible. But this kind of makes me think like, OK, what if there's, you know, a, a natural disaster or um, what if there's like a, now like what if there's a pandemic that's like way worse than this one that hits one state? You know, this there, there this could be kind of like a backup plan where, you know, a state could have representation without, uh, you know, if if if, you know, God forbid, something goes horribly wrong. Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing really stopping that from happening. So, okay, so now uh, not every country, I think there there are some countries that have something of, a, of an electoral college, but there are some countries that, you know, elect their, their president with a, a single constituency. And so I, I looked up maybe like uh, France or, or Brazil, they both have, you know, total national votes of like hundreds of millions of people. So where, where, where can we, how can we start to look at this? Like, what are the, what do you see as like the differences when you look at like this country and those countries benefits and drawbacks and. Well, look, France is a really good example. No offense to France, <laughs> what we don't want to do. And, and it's an example I use a lot actually, but, but if you look at the French system, they have, they have a general election and then they select the top two candidates assuming nobody gets a majority, I guess, but nobody ever comes even anywhere close. And so they have a yeah. runoff after that. And what ends up happening in those elections is literally they can have, you know, 10, 16 candidates in the general election. The vote gets so fractured among these different candidates that literally somebody will end up in the runoff with 19, 20% of the vote, not uncommon. And it's also not uncommon for it to be you know, maybe the incumbent or kind of a status quo person versus some extremist. And then, of course, the rest of the country feels like, well, <laughs> how did we land with these two choices? This is terrible. And in fact, in a recent French election, the, there was they can cast a, um, a ballot. It's basically a blank ballot and it's a protest vote. And you can do that in France. They had a record number of these ballots because the French people were so upset with their choices. And if you think about something like that, it's just there's nothing in that system to to incentivize coalition building, because if you're in that that field of 10 to 15 candidates and, you know, 20 percent is going to get you over the top into the runoff. Well, why don't you just run to your base and literally cater to them, give them whatever they want? Why would you work to 
work with other people. That's it's harder to work with other people. It's more time consuming. And, and it's just, it's just, there's just no reason to do it. And in fact, you know, another scenario in America where you could see that dynamic at play was in the um, 2016 GOP primary. Now, again, not making any statement about any particular candidate or the outcome, but just the dynamics in that primary. There were 17 candidates yeah. and there was literally no incentive to build coalitions. And in fact, at some points in that process, it would have been beneficial for you know, a couple of the candidates for one to voluntarily drop out and throw his support behind another or, or whatever. There were multiple moments like that and nobody would do it. <laughs> and the reason nobody would do it is because the prevailing attitude was, yeah, my 19% beats your 18%, you know, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. <laughs> I don't care what yeah. you think. And it, and so that's what happened. And, and look, I mean, it was, things aren't usually like that in America even during primaries. And I think that's because we know that we have to go on to this general election process that is about coalition building later. In 2016, there was just a lot of anger. And for whatever reason, that didn't work out. But whoever came out of that kind of divisive process was going to face the kind of coalition challenge, coalition building challenges that we've foreseen in recent years. So I would just encourage people to remember that, you know, Look, I mean, if you want a general election in November that looks like the 2016 GOP primary or like the French elections, what they experience over and over again, well, then get rid of the Electoral College. But but that's what you'll you'll be creating is you'll be creating a system where there is just no reason to ever come together or reach a hand across the aisle to someone who's not like you. Yeah. So so I was going to ask, you know, in terms of. Uh, you know, in, in, in the French election sort of playing to your base. I mean, some people would say that that's sort of what happens in the American election as well, although you already pointed out, like, that's a lot of that happens in the primary, which is a totally different system. But right. can you give me an example of, you know, coalition building that uh, that might happen uh, due to the Electoral College? Well, you you have to, right? And, and uh, let me... It, it, look, it's an interesting subject right now because clearly we're all the whole country is mad and angry and like and yeah, it, uh, there are certain awesome. things that election systems uh, maybe can't fix. I, I don't know. Well, I've been saying I, I think that we are in a moment in time that is like the period of time after the Civil War with just people at each other's throats. And in fact, if you look at those handful of years after the Civil War, it was very, very similar. I mean, two elections where the recorded national popular vote did not match the winner of the electoral vote, just like we had today in 2000 and 2016. You have a series of elections that look really similar with the same states being red and the same states being blue over and over again. This is a divide between, it was roughly between North and South back then. Today, of course, we've got the bicoastal blue with the red in the middle, and it just looks the same over and over again. Now, after the Civil War, I would argue that the Electoral College, because of its coalition building incentive, forced us out of that place. And the reason it forced us out of that place is because if you're a Democrat in the South, you literally could not win an election at all, period, unless you figured out how to get some state, you know, voters that were not like you, not your safe area, to vote for you. You had to figure it out. You had to figure out how to gain their trust or to listen to them. Now, if you're a Republican at that period of time, you could win the White House with just your safe areas in the North and the Northwest, but just barely. And if you lost anything at all to the Democratic candidate, then you were going to lose the election. And in fact, in 1884, they finally did lose an election to Grover Cleveland. And so over time, this this stark divide between North and South, it had to go away some. And it had to because of the Electoral College. And of course, by the early 1900s, we were electing people like Coolidge or FDR and landslide victories. Uh, and it just, it just, it helped the problem a lot. So I am not arguing that we're in a good place right now because clearly we're not. <laughs> but also what I would say is this is the absolute worst time to get rid of the Electoral College because it is one of the few things remaining in our system that really forces us to understand people who are not like ourselves. And the reason we're having close elections right now is because the political parties are being awfully darn stubborn about not paying attention to those incentives and, and they are catering to their base and they are not doing the things that they're supposed to do. But the first time one of the one of the part, it doesn't even take both of them, just one of the parties 
figures out how to quit being so stubborn and to take an inward look and to figure out how to how to get to you know how to gain the trust of middle america well that party is going to start winning in landslides it won't even be close it feels like this century at least um we've just had you know essentially you know the swing states have changed a little bit uh since 2000 i feel like every four years it kind of shifts a tiny bit oh you know we can turn this state blue or this but then oh we lost this state and this state turned red or vice versa you know mm-hmm. um uh, so it, it's um it's it, it, it's it's sort of been in a in a deadlock for i don't know 20 years maybe more it's been yeah i mean everybody's being really super stubborn that's all i really have to say <laughs> about that but yeah. i do think that i what's happening now is interesting at least from the perspective of I just, I wonder what the fallout of, I don't know, but I wonder what the fallout of this will be. There are people mad at politicians that they're not normally mad at. And, you know, there are Democrats mad at their Democratic governor or mayor, or the Republicans mad at their Republican governor or mayor. And, and what is this all going to do in the long run? I don't, I don't really know the answer to any of this, but I do think that we'll see some shifts after this. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, Right. So let's talk about the idea that the Electoral College encourages candidates to form a broad coalition that is geographically diverse. You know, I have to reach out to um, different states that I wouldn't normally go in rather than staying in, in a single state. So one question that someone might ask is, it might be coming at it from the point, and I'm sure you've heard this before, is like, you know, it should be one person, one vote, and every vote should be symmetrically identical to every other vote. And why is it that, like, geographic diversity is so important, you know? Um, maybe there should be diverse coalitions among different cultural groups or different religions or different age groups and generations. Why is it that geographic diversity is such a good thing? And is it geographic diversity or is it something else? I mean, I guess it sort of is and sort of isn't. The the person that I think that does the best job of talking about this is a professor in New York whose name is Judith Best. And she talks about states as safe factions upon which to rely. And what she means by that is basically like within a state, there's enough that's similar, but also enough that's dissimilar that you you end up because if I mean, an unsafe faction would be something like the pro-gun group versus the anti-gun group or, or, you know, something where it's like there's nothing else at all that holds them together except for that one single cause. And so they will do anything at all for it. Whereas opposed to a state, it's going to be something like, well, you know, there's urban and there's rural. There's, but we all have maybe in Texas, we, I don't know, have more vested interest in oil or something. I, I don't know. We, or we're, you know, I have a little bit of a, um, how do I describe this attitude? I don't know. We're just a little bit more independent and free thinking, I guess, as a general matter sure. as a Texan. Well, it's you sort know, of. I, I, I was always uh, free thinking here in New York, but I could, I've got to say in the last few months, it doesn't really feel that way. We have similarities because we got wide open spaces and because, you know, um, it, it, we just we don't live on top of each other in the way that you do in a place like New York. Now, and, and, and every state is going to go. You could go through each state and talk about the things that maybe you have that are similar versus the things, but also differences. I mean, if I, my Dallas, I live in Dallas, is a little bit more liberal than some of my surrounding counties. Sure. And definitely, you can definitely feel it when you go, <laughs> I have been traveling out of my county a bit lately. <laughs> when you travel out of the county, you can feel, you can feel the difference. I, I don't know. So you're just, you're looking for something that is similar enough, but dissimilar enough to be a safe faction. And also then if you are a presidential candidate and you have to go around and you have to appeal to all these different parts of the country, you're going to end up meeting a whole bunch of different people from a whole diff- bunch of different cultures and different industries and different, um, you know, some are farmers, some are users, some are, ev- there are so many different interests in this country and you have to create some way to force presidential candidates to pay attention to all of this because the president is the only person in the entire United States of America who is expected to represent all of us. There is no other candidate anywhere. They, they, you have senators who represent states or representatives who represent a, you know, a congressional district or governors who represent a state. Literally, the president is the only person expected to represent all of us. So he needs some kind of unique process that will force him to look around, or her to look around and to figure out 
you know, how can I get as many people on board? What, how big can I make my umbrella to bring as many people together so that we can focus on the things that we have in common, not the things that we have that are different. Okay, so I, I went on, oh, yeah, I wanted to mention an, an example that I found from, well, this is interesting. Um, uh, it was uh, an example from Iraq, which, not holding them up as a model, but uh, <laughs> sort of, uh, uh, just sort of an interesting fact that they, 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 they've done since 2003, since, since the invasion, is that they require, you know, they have Sunni, Shia, and, and Kurds, and they require the president, prime minister, and speaker of the house to have all three groups represented. And mm -hmm. so I look at that, and I'm like, okay, that's not geographic, it's ethnic, but in the context of uh, a country like Iraq, maybe that makes uh, that makes total sense. I mean, you know, there's there was ISIS and all that, but it, but it, it, hey, I, I would have been surprised in 2003 if you told me like the government that was set up uh, is is still operational in 2020. Right. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I, I just find it an example. Maybe that's an example of a country in a totally different situation solving a somewhat solving a in, in solving a, a similar problem of coalition building in a very different context um i don't know if it's relevant at all but i i sort of made me think of that um okay i uh, i went on to Quora to look up the question uh do you think the electoral college should be abolished and it's it's i thought that Quora because I, I read Quora a bunch and um I was. I thought that there were going to be a ton of yes answers, and I was surprised that uh, there were actually not too many yes answers. Um, but I did find uh, some that you know, some yes answers. Some of them are are kind of not not that smart. But I tried to find the smartest yes answers for people who said that they <laughs> want to eliminate the electoral college. And so, okay. So the first objection is, you know, hey, my state is decided, so my vote doesn't count here in New York. I know that uh, my state is going to go to Joe Biden this year, so I can I my vote doesn't count. I don't have to vote. I you know I can I can vote for a major party. I could vote for a third party. Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, so it's um, what do you say to that? Let's let's start with that. Well, a couple thoughts. One is I just I always wonder how much of that is self fulfilling prophecy versus. Like it has to be that way, just to be honest. I mean, there's no way to know, right? But right. what would happen if all the Republicans in New York and California or all the Democrats in Texas just showed up one year right. and, and cast their ballot? Like what would happen? What if you didn't assume defeat? And I, and I think to some degree, people don't vote because they don't understand the system. And so they feel demotivated. And I would propose education as a um, solution to that instead of just getting rid of the Electoral College. But the, you know, the other thought, I guess I would say is just, if you're a Republican in New York or California, you're, you're also having problems at the state level. I mean, you probably don't like your governor or your other state elected officials. You probably don't like the composition of your state legislature. And so you have a lot of work to do in your state overall to make your point of view heard. And it, it just kind of goes back to an understanding of what this is. You're not voting for president. You are voting for a state, a state an official that's going to represent your state, the presidential elector. It's just another statewide office. And so, and it's, and it's, you're not, not heard. You're on the losing side of the election, just like you were on the losing side of the election for governor, or just like you were on the losing side of the election for whatever other statewide office you were voting for that year. So it's discouraging. It's, it, nobody likes being on the losing side of an election. I'm not trying to make light of that even, but it's, it's different than saying your voice didn't count or something. Of course it counted your, your voice, but it was on the losing side of the election. And by the way, if we switch to a national election, we're not really getting rid of that dynamic. We're just saying instead of losing at the state level, now you lose at the national level. <laughs> so, you know, people, there are winners and losers in every election, and that's just the way it is. But there are important reasons why we do this state by state for coalition building and, and other similar purposes. And so we would lose that if we got rid of the Electoral College, and half the country would still have the frustration of being on the losing side of an election. Right. Uh, but it does seem like, if there's, I'm trying to think of an example, if there's like a uh, sort of a, a certain uh, industry um, uh, interest in, say, Pennsylvania, you know, the, uh, the uh, or, or, or just a certain group of people who feel very strongly about an issue in Pennsylvania, uh, the presidential candidates will focus on them a lot. But if you have those same groups in New York, uh, they're not going to have the same amount of say 
in the presidential election as uh, a group in Pennsylvania would. I, is that a, a problem? How do you think about that? I, I don't think that's true. I, I, I think that feels true, but I don't think it's actually true because the safe states are safe because they already feel pretty well represented in the governor, government, and they're pretty happy with the four years that preceded it. Or maybe if they were, you know, in the minority, they feel like their their team would do better. I mean, there, there's just there's already satisfaction with their party, or they would not be so safe. They would be a swing state. Um, I mean, to, there's this idea out there that safe states just don't matter and only swing states do, but it's just not true. I mean, there is literally no Democrat that would ever want to go into a presidential election without California's 55 electors in their pocket. They don't want that, and and they will move heaven and earth to make California happy. Believe me. And, and I'm sure they get an earful from them every time they're out there to raise money. I mean, the, Californians are being heard. They're not not being heard. And if and now a swing state is, well, you know what, I'm going to back up for a second. I was at a debate before all this craziness started. And I was debating someone who wanted to get rid of the Electoral College. He's actually a hired lobbyist for a group called National Popular Vote, but he's a Republican who's a hired lobbyist. And so he, we were sitting in Texas and he's talking to a room full of Texans. And he's, he, he says, you know, God help us if Texas ever goes purple. And he was talking about the fact that Texas could go purple soon. And then, you know, a few minutes later, he says, oh, safe states don't matter. And so I looked at him, I was like, well, which one is it? You know, God help us if Texas goes purple or Texas doesn't matter because Texas is safe. I mean, clearly Texas matters to the Republican Party. And if Texas goes purple, the Republican Party is going to be super upset. And you can look at other examples through history where safe states they, they they just parties demonstrated that the safe state mattered to them. You could look at Utah in 2016 and the Republican Party was That's terrified they were one. about to vote. They were the Republican Party was terrified they were about to vote third party because they were so unhappy with both of the choices. And so Mike Pence promptly in, in the closing days of the campaign, which never happened, Mike Pence was sent out to this, a little tiny, quote, quote unquote, safe red state to shore up those votes. I think they've got six or seven in Utah. Right. In Utah. They, I, to I shore think, up those votes. I think Utah in 2012 was the reddest state. It probably was. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and yet that little state with such a small allocation of electors could get that kind of attention at the last minute because they were threatening to not be, you know, not be safe anymore. So, I mean, I always say, look, swing states, the only difference between a swing state and a safe state is that a swing state is making up its mind much later in the process. A, all of the states matter. You cannot get to 270. The math does not work unless you can have some combination of safe and swing states voting for you. And and in fact, when a safe state stops being satisfied, they will let you know really fast, which Hillary Clinton learned to her consternation in 2016. She took those states for granted, some of those blue wall states, and she shouldn't have done it. And, and by the way, it's all she had to do to win the election was pay them a little bit of attention, you know, and she and she just right, the didn't. Midwest. And she didn't. She was too busy shoring up support in some of her safe areas. And the reason she was doing that is because she was um, afraid that she was about to win the electoral vote and lose the popular vote, and she didn't want to do that. So she she literally purposefully did exactly what the electoral college tells her not to do, which is to overfocus on friendly areas. And so that so that's what happened. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I know, you know, California and Texas were not safe states, uh, haven't been safe states for uh, for that long. I mean, I guess, you know, in, in the last, I don't know how many years, 30 years maybe, but, you know, Texas was Democrat and California mm -hmm. was Republican, even, you know, up to, what, the 1970s, 80s? I'm trying to remember, think if I if I have that that correct. New York's always, <laughs> New York's Texas insane. voted. Yeah. Texas voted for Jimmy Carter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then they started voting Republican for, for Ronald Reagan. California right. and New York were voting Republican as late as, I'm trying to think, I think California voted for George H.W. Bush. I don't think New York did. I could right. be wrong. I have to go back and look that up again. But certainly for Reagan, both of those states voted, for, were voting red. So it, yeah. it just changes. It changes a lot. There's a whole slew of Southern states that voted for Bill Clinton that would that would not have dreamt it's of totally voting for forgotten. Barack Obama. Yeah. It almost right? seems or like West that never happened. Yeah, no, right? It seemed like that seems so long ago. But um, West Virginia, it, it flipped. In 2000, it flipped. It was a safe blue state for forever. And then it got completely ignored by Al Gore. And, of course, it already had these concerns about the environment and coal mining and so forth. And so 
they they just flipped. They went red, and they've been red ever since. So you can't take anybody for granted. As soon as they feel ignored, they will leave and go vote some other way. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, a few months ago, I sort of reviewed some of the, uh, and I, yeah, you could judge me for what I do in my free time, but maybe maybe you do similar things. I was I was watching <laughs> uh, the 2000 election on YouTube, like you know the the news, and it was amazing to me how they were talking about you know oh uh, you know Kentucky and Missouri, those are the two bellwethers. Those are like the quintessential purple states. Uh, not anymore. You know, what happened? Yeah, yeah. So It just changes. I mean, to me, it's more like a pendulum swinging kind of back and forth. And maybe it's, but in some ways, nationally and at the state level, right? There's maybe different pendulums even swinging. But maybe it goes, leans towards the Democratic side. You know, that's why people were saying Hillary Clinton was a shoe in 2016 because she, she had... You know, she, people are saying she started off with a lead in the Electoral College, like she already has 240 or something, and she just basically needs to get a couple more to push her over the top. And then it swings back, though, like after the Reagan years, who would have thought, you know, with the massive advantages that the Republicans seem to have, who would have thought that Bill Clinton would come along and win so easily? Just a couple of elections later. It, but it just it just swings back and forth. And it's always just a goal to figure out who can get the most people, you know, from your base, obviously, but also from the middle. And the, and the people who are doing the best job with that are the ones who win. And the people who do the very, very best job with that win in landslides like Reagan and, and uh, FDR. Yeah. Okay. So um, a second argument that I, I got that I'm, I'm sure you get is like, you know, hey, not all votes are equal in the Electoral College. And that's sort of like offends a, a sense of, of, of fairness. Like if, if you interchange two votes between states, it's not the same. And that's somehow, uh, you know, that, that's somehow um, privileging some citizens over other citizens. So how do you get, respond to that? People have this idea in their mind that if it's purely democratic, it's inherently fair. Like one person, one vote is inherently fair. But it's, it's not. It's actually not. I mean, if you and the easy illustration that you maybe, maybe you've heard is two wolves and a sheep voting on for dinner. Right. That's not a fair system. It's, the sheep gets eaten for dinner all the time. And so the question really is, how do you have a just system? How do you ensure that rights are best protected? How do you ensure that the most voices are heard? And, and the founders, they knew this. They knew this better than we could ever understand in many ways. They had just fought a revolution because they believed so strongly in the principle of self-governance. They did not have a seat at the table of parliament. They they did not think that was right. And they they literally put their lives on the line. Some of them lost their lives. But they knew something else we've forgotten, which is that even if they had been given a seat at the table of parliament, they would have been outvoted time and time again by the majority of citizens at home in England. They would have had the exact same problem. They still would have been tyrannized. Right. So the problem was how do you how do you balance these considerations to come up with something where people are self-governing and and reasonable majorities do rule, but that minorities are not unnecessarily tyrannized either. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, next week I'm going to kind of give a mathematical description of the Electoral College and elections more generally. And it's interesting how, you know, you could give a description of election. Let's say there are three voters, majority rules. Well, and my vote is clearly worth a third and equal to everybody else's vote. But it actually depends on who the other voters are going to be. Like you said, if it's two sheeps and a, uh, or two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner, yeah. if I'm the sheep, my vote is not worth very much. But if it's a situation where the, um, the other two people are always arguing with each other and I have a very big interest in who wins and it's usually I sometimes I support one person, sometimes I support the other person, I could basically get my way, then my vote is worth a ton. You know, so it, 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 it's one thing people don't consider is that it depends on who's in the constituency you're voting with. I mean, practically speaking, in America also, geography would start to come into play an awful lot because if technically, okay, the person living on a, on a ranch in Wyoming, his vote is worth or her vote's worth the same as somebody living in L.A., but the fact is the person in L.A. lives next to millions of other potential voters. <laughs> and so if you're a presidential candidate with limited time and resources, not even for bad and you know bad reasons or not even ill-intentioned at all but just for practical reasons that presidential candidate is going to go to la where it ha they have the possibility of drumming up millions of votes they're not going to go travel out to wyoming to go learn about the guy on the ranch 
it's just an inequality that w- there there will be inequality no matter what. And, and I think it's a little bit of a just a utopian kind of idea to think if we make every person vote completely mathematically equal, that they will also be practically and pragmatically equal. They won't. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting how, you know, in 1789, it would have been you physically had to travel there. Um, but now it's it's almost the same situation where you have media markets. And if I, you know, I could like spray ads to uh, New York and, and California to try to get or parts of Texas to try to get, you know, as much votes as, as possible, um, if, if that was my goal. And, you know, even even targeted ads, it's still like online ads. There's still a lot of its geography based. Um, so. Right. And, the, and to be fair, it's not really so much about physically traveling there anymore, but it's about learning about life. You know, why would you right. go learn about life on a ranch in Wyoming when it's so much easier just to come to L.A. and figure out what's bothering people there? Right, right. So uh, you've said that you don't support a- any changes to the Electoral College, even though there, there are people who say, well, you know, I don't want to get rid of it entirely. I just want to make these small changes. First of all, before I get into the, this question, what do you think, what are kind of the tweaks that people sometimes uh, suggest to the Electoral College and what are the issues with them? Well, I mean, so one is that they suggest that the um, Electoral Votes should just be automated, and instead of having real people as electors, that you know we would just automatically say how you know how Texans votes or California votes or New York votes that would just automatically we would automatically deem those electors um, to be cat to be counted for for how they were came out on election day. But I, look, I think that people sometimes forget that emergencies could arise in which we would be really unhappy with that situation. You know, a, a candidate could have a stroke or a candidate could maybe we discover, I don't know, like a, a Watergate kind of thing comes up between Election Day and, um, well, I guess if you didn't if you had an automatic allocation of electors, you would skip all that and go to the counting of the votes by Congress. But what if something like that came up? I mean, what if there are situations where you really just want electors to be able to, as Madison said, substitute the second choice of the people for the first choice of the people because of some emergency situation. I I think there's validity to that. And I think that if we tinker with, I think when you tinker with things, you don't always know what's going to happen. John F. Kennedy once said, you know, the, the election system is like a solar system of governmental power. And if you change one aspect of the system, there's a domino effect. You know, if you change the gravitational pull of the sun, you, you change the Earth's orbit and you might make Earth uninhabitable. And so I've kind of come to the conclusion, I, 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 you know, if you'd asked me tw- 20 years ago, I probably would have said, well, maybe automating, automating the electors, maybe that's not such a big deal. Now I kind of think, oh, wait, do you really know what you're doing? <laughs> or, you know, or is this going to start some domino effect that you couldn't anticipate? Yeah. You know, another thing people say or it could is just, something. It could be like, okay, it's maybe marginally better. Uh, most of the time, but then when we hit that one crisis, it really screws things up. Right. I mean, you just can't anticipate everything that's coming down the pike necessarily. And the same thing with the contingent election. You'll hear complaints about the way that that's conducted in the House. And I I tend to have the same reaction to that now, too. Just, well, you don't really know what the unintended ramifications of that are going to be. And while we've had discontent expressed with that in the past, I mean, in 2016, there were people actively working to provoke that situation. They, they failed, of course, but they were trying. So there must be at least some portion of the country that sees some useful for it in some situations. So, you know, I don't know. Why mess with why mess with anything at all? And, you know, and of course, the the last thing people want to do, of course, is just to get rid of the Electoral College altogether, which, you know, for sure. obvious reasons, I'm against that. So, okay, so don't touch the Electoral College, leave it as it is. But what about the way states hold their elections? And what about the way parties hold their primaries? It seems like the people who want to change the Electoral College don't have a whole lot to say about these things. Um, but uh, could could those use some changes or at least some experimentation? Uh, well, I probably do stay out of it a lot because I don't want to confuse people about what's what. The, the, right. the primaries are completely different from the well, we could Well, we could get into more detail here on, on the local maximum. <laughs> Well, I usually just say that to the extent that the primaries have failed us, I think it's because they don't encourage coalition building in the same way that the Electoral College does. And there's probably lots of different ideas about how you could 
change that. And, you know, I came up with a list of ideas in 2016 and now I'm trying to remember what, what even some of those were. I mean, maybe it could be something as simple as if you don't get a majority of, of the delegates, then electors aren't bound at the convention. Mm. You can have a little bit more discussion about whether or not you're going to really nominate that candidate or not. Um, you know, I mean, maybe there's simple things like that that you could do that would just, what I'm trying to avoid is the situation where a candidate says, well, my 19% beats your 18% and now I get to win the convention. Right. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not good. I think that's what the Democrats were trying to do with their superdelegates. And I, I do think it was well-intentioned. But unfortunately, the superdelegates have just turned into just party control over the process when that, I mean, it's just, it's not what was intended. Those superdelegates kind of came after a series of events like the, like the one that produced George McGovern, where they, they just wanted something to kind of temper the, you know, if, if it starts to go too much to one extreme, they wanted something to temper that and to, pr to produce a candidate that would actually do well in a general election and not just do well in a, you know, something that caters only to the party. Gotcha. So it sounds so, like they picked party insiders uh, to right. stand in instead of actually, you know, changing the um, the electoral system. And ended up, yeah, I mean, they ended up not really helping themselves, probably. But and, and then people, of course, are suspicious of the superdelegates and don't understand why they're there. And of course, when the superdelegates aren't performing their function, you can understand why people are suspicious of what's going on. So, I mean, both parties, in my view, really have some work to do to to figure out how they're going to work on coalition building at the primary level. But again, that is different than the, the Electoral College and, and that sort of a system. But um, there was something else you asked me about now. I'm trying to remember what it was. Uh, the way states hold their elections. Oh, so... Well, I mean, that's just, are you talking about things like voter ID and stuff? Or are um, you talking about? Okay, so there there are a number of things in all? here. I definitely want to ask, you know, you know, first, you know, if the Electoral College is so great, you know, why not use it on the state level? Why not use it to elect governors or senators or to pick the presidential electors themselves? But also there are other things that states can do. Uh, before we talk about that on on the, um, uh, you know, on, on the... Uh, on the presidential level, that's maybe not as controversial like w what Maine and, and Nebraska do, which is kind of allowing people to split their vote or maybe do some kind of, uh, you know, rather than having it be winner take all, maybe do some kind of a runoff system. I don't know. Uh, but there's there's a whole host of, of ways a, a state could choose to, to hold the election. Sure. I mean, I, so what I would say to that is just I'm a big fan of every state gets to decide for themselves. Maine and Nebraska have chosen a different system. They have a congressional district system pretty well. I, I mostly stay out of it in other states because I figure each state can govern themselves. You know, it's yeah. none of my business. But if in Texas, since I live here in Texas, if congressional district system came up, I would be against that for Texas given our concerns here. And the main reason would be because of the gerrymandering problem, which is already such an issue when it comes to congressional districts. But if you throw the weight of the presidential election behind it also, I can imagine the fight that would ensue. And, and I guess I tend to also think, you know, so we just turn our swing state quote unquote problem into a swing district problem. And so I wouldn't really be a big fan of that. If we have a local concern in Dallas, I don't think it's the subject of a presidential race. I don't think that's should just solve our own problems here in Dallas or in Texas. So, I mean, those would be my reasons in my state for, for being against that. But look, it's, I think other states, maybe they are, they have a better process for drawing congressional lines that just works more efficiently. And maybe they're not so worried about that. Or I, I think every state has its own priorities and needs. And so every state should just do what it wants to do. And I'm a huge fan of that. Yeah, so uh, th then let's move to the question of the very interesting question of why not use an electoral college type system to elect sort of governors on a state level, uh, which, um, well, I, I have a, I actually have a few things to say about it uh, on, on the, the state I live in. I mean, maybe this is kind of fantasy because it would be sort of difficult to, uh, to get people to accept this, but um, do, you think, uh, do you think that could be a good idea? I, I absolutely have long been a fan of that and have said so several times. I, I think especially in the big states like New York, California, Texas, um, Pennsylvania might feel that way too. I feel like I hear lots of complaints from Pennsylvania, but 
I absolutely think that. Why should Dallas and Houston and Austin have such an outsized influence on who the governor is? I, I don't think it's, I mean, I live in Dallas, but I don't think it's fair. I, I think that there, I mean, the needs of West Texas or East Texas or South Texas are completely different than anything that's going on here in, in Dallas. I mean, Texas is so big, you know? Yeah. Um, it's just, and so I would be a fan of that, you know, and I think that we should consider that. Nobody ever does, I guess, because I don't know, it would involve getting people in power to, to relinquish some of that so that we could change our constitution to make that happen. But yeah, it, or maybe it's just because people don't know to ask for it and it just doesn't even occur to them. People are too busy bashing the presidential election system to think to themselves, actually, it's a pretty good thing and we should take it down to the state level, too. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's interesting. So I found an article from 2014 that someone wrote and it's someone who's against the Electoral College. And they kind of asked, well, what if we did this in Pennsylvania to elect our governor? And you know, they went on and on about how ridiculous it is. But essentially, they were just saying, well, look, you'd have these swing counties and the um, the candidates would focus on these swing counties. They basically took their uh, their criticisms of the Electoral College and just moved it down to the smaller right. level without actually, you know, saying it, it was kind of like pretending it's reducio ad absurdum when it's really not. Uh, it was just right. sort of um, sort of taking the same same concept there. But yeah, no, it's, it's interesting here here in New York. It's you've got a very stark urban rural divide, probably the most in the in the country. Um, a pretty uh, upstate has been neglected, um, you know, pretty thoroughly by our state government. Um, and and it's not so good for downstate either because, the, you know, people in New York City feel like, well, all our money goes up there to, you know, for like pork projects for politicians, but it doesn't even help them economically. It's, I don't know, it just feels like a, it feels like a broken system. Um, even a small state though, like I grew up in Connecticut and Connecticut has, you know, nice, neat towns where it's almost like a grid and all the towns are roughly the same size. Uh, but there are like, there are like a few big cities in Connecticut that are very different. And the, the, the cities and the towns in Connecticut are just never, um, they, they, they never seem to be like aligned in their interests. There never seems to be a good coalition there. They seem to be in completely different worlds. And, um, I think even in a small state like Connecticut, it because you know I grew up in, in Weston, very rural area, and well, at least I went to high school there, and then I went to college in, in New Haven, and uh, just totally different. Or even when I was growing up, like you know, going to Bridgeport or whatever, just you know, you drive down the street, you drive 20 minutes, and it's, it's totally different. And it's like, um, yeah, the, there there is no coalition building, and there hasn't for generations, and it's it's I think one of the reasons why the state is is runs so poorly. Well, and then you've got a state like Virginia, which you've got somebody was telling me about the dynamics in that state, like a resident was telling me about the dynamics in that state. It's basically saying all these people that come to D.C. to work for an administration and but then they, or, or they go to work for a government bureaucracy. And of course, the bureaucracy is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger all the time. So this kind of this kind of a person who has the D.C. mindset, but they're living in Virginia and they're influencing Virginia policy because they're becoming such a big portion of the, the, the state's population. And there's some kind of native Virginians who are feeling very left out because they feel like they're just being ruled by people that are a little bit more national government minded than maybe they would have been in the beginning which, you know, a little bit more big government kind of a mindset going on there. Right. So it's almost because I don't know how you fix this uh, for Virginia. It's almost like, sorry, Virginia, I don't either. but it's like the the uh, you know, the the interests of Virginia have become the interests of Washington, D.C., which. Is, right. I mean, I wouldn't want that kind of weird for New York City. Um, but uh, all right. So, uh, yeah. So there is this electoral vote compact between the states. And what they're trying to do is. Um, uh, they're, they're trying to uh, get together, and uh, a bunch of states are trying to get together, get our 270 majority of electoral votes, and say, well, we're going to just swing our electoral votes to the winner. Um, so are you con concerned that this could succeed uh, sometime in the near future? Yeah, I mean, I, I am. I hope they don't, but certainly could am concerned. They've got 196 electors on, on board. So just so just to be start from the beginning for your listeners, yeah. it's a 
simple contract among states that has been proposed. The constitutional amendment is too hard. It requires supermajorities of Congress and, of course, of the states. And they, they don't think they're going to get three quarters of the states. They're, they would have trouble. And so this is much easier. Let's just have a contract and we'll sign this contract, even with a minority of states on board. By the way, you could change the whole system. And the contract goes into effect when they have 270 electors signed on because that's how many it takes to win a presidential election. Right now, they have states holding 196 electors. So they're just, you know, 74 votes shy of what they need. And that's with 15 states plus D.C. They have reached that number of 196. And so they just need a handful more states and their contract will go into effect, which um and or I should say that so the contract says we give our all of our I think I skipped that part all of our electors go to the winner of the national popular vote right no matter how the internal state election goes and so it has been all blue states have signed this so far which you know I don't think the electoral college is partisan and so I don't like talking about it in those terms however it has become perceived as partisan and people think that it is against the Democratic Party somehow which of course it's not. Democratic presidents also win in the Electoral College <laughs> over and over right. again throughout our history. But um, blue states have all signed on and they just need now they're going to end up needing probably some of the blue wall states or, or something like that to sign on to help them get over the top. But they're working on it. Yeah. So, I mean, a few things about that. I mean, I, I think part of that is because of, you know, Al Gore getting more votes than George Bush and Hillary Clinton getting more votes than Donald Trump, even though neither of them got 50%, neither of them actually got a majority. But um, I, I'm not even sure they would have won if there was a popular vote. I think the, you know, and you've pointed this out too, like the the election would have been fought totally differently. Right. There's no way to know. Just, yeah. It's just impossible to tell. There would have been different strategies. There would have been different campaign stops. Everybody would have done something different. And yeah. who knows who would have won. And in fact, probably third parties would have made a much greater appearance in both both of those elections. Yeah. And who knows who they would have taken votes away from. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is sort of an interesting thing to watch, uh, you know, for well, this will be going on for a while. I'm afraid that this this electoral vote compact, I I feel like once the if it goes into effect, uh, once the states are then, you know, asked to vote, like if, if a Republican wins the the popular vote, which, you know, it's going to happen at some point, uh, they might start to like rethink that. Or someone's going to like, well, it's hard. (laughs) It's pretty hard to, it's too late for this year. They're not going to, it's not going to be in effect for this year, but say they had gotten it for this year. It's really hard to imagine California, Massachusetts, two signatories to this compact calmly just giving their votes to Donald Trump, right, right. you know, because they signed the compact. They're more likely <laughs> yeah, just to say, no. oh, just well, kidding. this, yeah, yeah, just this, we have, we're a sovereign state. We have the right to pull out of this compact and we pull out of this compact and no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what would happen, I think. Or, and so, I, yeah. And it's, in fact, it's one of the weaknesses of the comp. There's lots of weaknesses to the compact, but one of them is just the instability of it, right? Are we in or are we out? Are we in or are we out? Which, what kind they of presidential campaign are we running this year? And it's, it, so, well, according to the terms of the compact, you're supposed to decide by July, I think it's like July 20th or something like that. But in reality, what's going to happen is states are going to do what they want to do because they're sovereign states. And you can't, constitutionally, it's, I don't think you can bind a state that way and say, no, I'm sorry, I, that you're forbidden to change your system after July 20th. Well, no, I don't, there's nothing stopping that. Yeah. The Constitution gives states complete discretion over how to allocate their electors. And as long as they don't violate some other portion of the Constitution in the process, they can do what they want to do. And so now, by the way, that becomes important to the Constitution, constitutionality of the overall compact also, because as soon as that thing goes into effect, what's going to happen is there's going to be a lawsuit filed, probably by the non-participating states, that says, we're sorry, but this this is, you know, this flies in the face of Article 5, which requires a supermajority before you can get rid of our Federalist Republican, small r, um, presidential election system. You can't just implement a purely democratic one. The, the purely democratic system that was explicitly rejected at the constitutional convention, and do it without supermajority approval. So, I mean, that's the lawsuit that will follow. 
Yeah, so uh, we're coming to the end here. I just have a couple questions that, that uh, you know, come to mind. Uh, you've been writing about the Electoral College for a while. I'm just curious, like, how, when did you start getting interested in it and, <laughs> enough to, like, start writing about it, studying it? Well, the answer always surprises people. I started writing about the Electoral College because I broke my arm during my last semester of law school. <laughs> I was in a taxi cab wreck, and you should always wear your seatbelt in taxi cabs, just so you know. You're in New York. You should definitely... Like wear your seatbelt when you get in those taxi cabs, or maybe it's an Uber now, but whatever, yeah. you should put your seatbelt on. And I didn't. And so I broke my arm in a car wreck. And then, but I was still in law school. And so I had, I needed a certain number of hours to graduate. And so I had to ditch all the classes that required me to take notes in class because I couldn't do it anymore. And one of the things that I did instead was an independent study of the Electoral College. And that's, that's how I got started. This was back, and I just did it because it was easy i thought this is an easy topic it was 2001 i figured there's it just wasn't hard to dig up information about the electoral college at that point in yeah, time and that would have been a hot and topic so, in but, 2001 right but it i ended up is. learning so much <laughs> still, uh, yeah. yeah well it's still here I, I ended up learning so much that i didn't know i thought i understood it and i i didn't hmm. and, and i realized how much nobody had ever bothered to teach me and the other thing i realized is that this system as i said before is not partisan Something that people don't realize is that Al Gore also thought that he was going to win the electoral vote and lose the popular vote. So he had a team of lawyers preparing a defense for him so that he could defend his electoral college victory to the public. That's what he was doing in October of 2000. And of course, that ended up not happening. But it just showed me how easily this can flip in favor of either political party. It's not a partisan system. It rewards the best coalition builder. And when nobody's coalition building, that's when you end up in these series of close elections like we have now. Yeah. So um, the, the last question, I do want to talk about what's I, I have to talk about what's going on now. And, and this is purely um, this is purely speculative. So I don't want to kind of put you on the spot, but we have an election coming up uh, and the Electoral College is going to be very tight. What do you think is what do you see coming into play? Well, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this, but how do you see the Electoral College coming into play in the 2020 election? And how do you see the candidates uh, behaving um, as a result of the Electoral College? <laughs> or what can we well, say about 2020 at this point? I don't, I mean, everything is just so crazy. I don't even know what to say. But I, <laughs> I do think that, we look we are where we are because n none of them are building coalitions right none of them they just aren't and i wish they would but um so i mean i guess we're stuck here for another round of this <laughs> i wish i you know look maybe what i want to tell voters though is this is all in your hands i mean like at any point in time we can change any of this and you know I mean, you just can, you know, you can change it in the primaries, you can change it at, at, at other points along the way when you're voting for other officials and keep in mind what our constitution is there for and what it, what it asks us to do with our fellow states and our fellow Americans and vote accordingly. You know, I don't think we're really doing that right now. I think everybody is off in their little corner trying to see if they can like, ram this through you know i always my my secret wish list for this country is i'm going to ram this idea through whatever it is insert your issue it doesn't even really matter which one I mean, everybody is just so focused on getting their own way that they have forgotten that we are a country full of americans with a shared history and a shared heritage that we have so much to be proud of and we are instead just focused on our little petty gripes with each other and look and some legitimate problems that that need to be resolved but we will do it better if we remember that we are all good people in this country trying to do the right thing. We just have a difference of opinion sometimes. And we can listen to our fellow Americans respectfully without calling them names on social media and try to figure out what it is that's driving the other perspective so that we can find the common ground in the middle. And as soon as we remember that, things will start to get a lot better. All right. So uh, the book is called Why We Need the Electoral College. Um, Tara, thank you so much for coming on today. Do you have any last thoughts on this? And uh, where can we find more about your book and more about you? Well, I, my website's easy. It's just taraross.com. 
And you can always find my books on the website or you could find the books on Amazon. And of course the latest electoral college one is why we need the electoral college, but there's also a kid version for anybody that wants the kid version, which is um, called We Elect a President, the story of our electoral college. And truthfully, some adults like that one better. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> Good to know. Tara, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Next week, you'll hear from an actual elector. It was my first time meeting one of these electors that I know of. And uh, you'll also get uh, a further breaking down of the social choice theory from me. I held off on sponsors today purposefully. I do have some sponsors in the pipeline, but I wanted to bring today's conversation completely uninterrupted. Uh, But if you're interested in sponsoring The Local Maximum, please let me know. I'll send some materials your way. After next week, I'm hoping to return focus to engineering and product. Uh, I have some episodes on design and data visualization in the pipeline, so I hope you'll join me for that. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.